Hello? Is this thing even on? Hello there. Welcome to Books You're Too Busy to Read. It's been a long time since I've created a podcast, and that's mainly because of the time factor. But just to kind of recap, this podcast, I just kind of like to talk about a lot of the different things that I have been reading that clearly in the title, maybe you're too busy to read, that I think really correlates to what's going on um, with the society around us. And of course, I love politics, so I pay a lot of attention to politics. So a lot of stuff I read, it's not hard to kind of pick out themes that I see. And um, I cannot help but try to find a way to make a podcast after all the things that have been happening um, in the past several months. So much really has been kind of going through my mind, Um, as you can tell from the title, why the left seems to have lost their minds, that creating podcasts sometimes helps me to get it all out, regardless of who or if anyone is actually listening. So... From the title of this podcast, you know, I believe, I feel like there are heightened emotions, a chorus of people on the left, whether it's in Hollywood, the news, journalists, and politicians, seems to always be reaching a fever pitch. Okay, that's kind of my impression with uh, what I pay attention to. Now, I understand, you know, that this would happen right after the election uh, when Donald Trump surprisingly won. So I get that, I understand why, and maybe, you know, the first year. But, you know, honestly, I didn't think to this level it would continue uh, these very strong, you know, apocalyptic arguments would continue um, almost two years later with the fact that the economy actually is doing good. And overall optimism of people are still really high. So, you know, to put it into kind of perspective, I guess this is how I would like give a comparison. If someone from another planet landed in Washington, D.C., you know, for a visit for the first time, knowing nothing, they would quickly board their spaceship and leave because of all the apocalyptic language surrounding the Beltway, you know, which has reverberated a little bit throughout the country but isn't so much necessarily felt in all states. You know, so I've thought about why. Why does this hellfire and brimstone still exist right now, especially considering the economy is doing well? And it cannot, you know, just be because the left believes that Trump is immoral and unfit. You know, I do believe that there's a little bit more to it than that. And I've been even more convinced with the Kavanaugh hearings that there's a little bit more to it than that. So kind of here's my succinct, you know, answer to that. Democrats need the White House and the Supreme Court and not Congress in order to legislate. So that's kind of my succinct answer. So to put it another way, the left does not see the painstaking and laborious bill-making process as a good way to create their utopian society. So they need the White House and the Supreme Court to implement, create, legislate laws. And I have three reasons for this theory that I kind of want to try to quickly, you know, explain in this podcast of why 
I think that this adds to them losing their minds. So the three reasons are, one, something called Dear Colleague Letters. Two, something called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the CFPB. That also can be known as administrative state. That's kind of in, you know, tangent with administrative state. And then the third one is Oberfagel. That is the hardest name I think to say Oberfagel versus Hodges in 2015. That's that's the gay marriage, I guess one could say, with uh, the Supreme Court. So those are kind of my three reasons of why, how to explain how they've lost their minds when it comes to the last like two years, and especially right now. So the first one with the Dear Colleague Letters. Now, this kind of came to my attention, especially during the Obama administration. This is where I first kind of learned about some of this. And it's been around before them, of course. And this is just letters, really, that is sent out by, you know, the White House departments to kind of give clarity on how to implement certain things in different institutions. It's to help different institutions basically know how to get federal money. The strings attached with uh, some of the things that you know they want to do and so some of this helps to kind of give clarity to it for them to know how to do things well the Obama administration kind of took this to another level and there is one letter in particular that I think really can help understand you know the atmosphere that we find ourselves in today uh, with women who allege uh, sexual crime and then the corresponding um, you know, quote is she must be believed or her truth. And so this, I think, in my opinion, you know, was a snowball effect that came from this letter, April 4th, 2011. And this dear colleague letter was issued by the Office for Civil Rights. And it went to more than 7,000 colleges that received financial money in regards to Title IX which fundamentally changed the standards of proof for Title IX. So one interesting article in the Washington Post, it was titled The Path to Obama's Dear Colleague Letter, and this was by Casey Johnson and Stuart Taylor. They explained it this way. The letter required universities to allow accusers to appeal not guilty findings, a form of double jeopardy. It further told schools to accelerate their adjudications with a recommended 60-day limit. And perhaps most important, the Office of Civil Rights, or OCR, strongly discouraged cross-examination of accusers given the procedures that most universities employed. So really, in essence, this kind of translated into what we know to be violations of due process. Um, It kind of short-circuited some of that, and it really put the accusers kind of in the driver's seat uh, to gain the most protection, you know. So the argument for this violation that really started to perpetuate from this idea is something that you probably have heard a lot this last week to excuse, like, the unjust treatment of Brett Kavanaugh, and that is, to quote it, this is not a court of law. So this implies 
you know, that we only believe in due process if someone is inside a courtroom. So kind of just to elaborate on this really scary idea, in my opinion, here is sort of an analogy relating, you know, to religion. It would be as if a religion advocates to their parishioners that, look, you only have to act and behave a certain way while you're in the church building for church worship. But when you're outside of that building, then you can have a lower standard of behavior towards your fellow man. And, you know, I don't know if there's any religion that ever advocates that, that whatever they preach on Sunday uh, is only for Sunday and you don't really have to do it anywhere else. Well, the U.S. Constitution really is more like the Bible to Americans in the sense that it expresses what we believe to be common behavior towards one another. To kind of take that point home, Sir Roger Scruton, a British philosopher, explained this very idea in his book called Conservatism, An Invitation to the Great Tradition. He explained it this way. The U.S. Constitution was designed to guarantee to the people what they had once enjoyed before the crown began to tax them without authority. It was the residue of an already established practice rather than a recipe for a new order of things. So basically the founders wrote down on paper what common law and practices were already happening between one another. So it wasn't something new and special that everyone had to do and figure out. So, you know, therefore, we naturally believe in the basic due process of innocent until proven guilty on a day-to-day basis um, with our neighbor, at work, at church, wherever we are. That's kind of our fundamental core belief in general. You know, however, you know, this dear colleague letter sanctioned this idea that allegations alone is enough to shift the burden of proof from the accuser to the accused. So this has permeated our society as young adults have gone through college campuses from 2011 out into the real world. You could almost look at it as a a generation is, you know, four years, because four years of college, that's usually people use to get a degree, usually. And so four years is one generation. So we've had at least one and a half you know, generations of young adults who kind of have this idea in their head that due process is situational. It just really depends on where you are if it actually applies. Now this false narrative reminds me of something that Plato called noble lies. I love this concept and this idea. And really the definition of noble lies is literal falsehoods expressing emotional truths. And so I think a lot of us can identify with that idea, right? It almost feels like this past month. And right now it's September 29th. And so basically the month of September has felt like noble lies almost. So really, to me, I feel like we are being ruled now, not by the law, but by noble lies. Again, this doesn't mean someone is bad uh, or has 
bad intentions or bad motives. It just is a different way of looking at reality and life. So even if you concede, right, that this April 4th, you know, 2011 Dear Colleague letter had a domino effect in our common culture of due process, you might also kind of be wondering, well, what does it have to do with the left going mad? So to kind of bring it back to that article by Johnson and Taylor in the Washington Post, they explain why I believe the left really needs the White House in order to legislate their utopian society. So this is how they explained it. First, as with any modern democratic administration, strong advocates of identity politics occupied key bureaucratic positions, which they could use to implement regulatory policies outside of rigorous congressional oversight. Kind of what I was saying before about how they don't want to go through that laborious process of lawmaking. So they go on to say, second, the democratic defeat in the 2010 midterm elections focused Obama's attention on how identity politics could rally his base. The model had worked well and one of the few major Democratic victories that year, the Colorado Senate race. So the administration took high-profile positions in favor of marriage for same-sex couples, permitting dreamers to remain in the United States and mandating contraceptive coverage in Obamacare. The Dear Colleague letter, which appealed to feminists and campus activists, reflected this broader campaign agenda. Except that, unlike these other Obama initiatives, it initially encountered no legislative criticism. So as you can see, with Donald Trump in the White House, the Dear Colleague letters are going to look very different and not really go towards maybe what they would like for it to go towards. Or maybe just really be something that is to advise um, other institutions and not to direct them to do things. So now that the left you know, cannot use all of the tools of the White House or the executive branch to legislate you know, their utopian society, you know, one would think, you know, no worries because they still have the Supreme Court. And then until Justice Kennedy stepped down, then a new level of hysteria seemed to take place. And I underestimated how much they uh, depended on Kennedy really as a swing vote. So as I turn now to the Supreme Court, I kind of want to combine, you know, my other two points into one under this kind of Supreme Court idea. So, so just as a reminder, I listed three reasons for why I believe the left has gone mad. The first one was what I discussed with the Dear Colleague letters. The second was about the Consumer Financial um, Board, and that is more known as Protection Board, CFPB which is I'm also going to kind of title the administrative state. And I'm combining that with the third point under Supreme Court, Obergefell <laughs> versus Hodges. Okay. So I really do think these two ideas really overlap because the Supreme Court has ruled on many things dealing with the administrative state, which also could overlap with dear colleague, because the administrative state is really found in the executive branch. And most recently, 
Judge Brett Kavanaugh wrote two opinions on Senator Elizabeth Warren's beloved CFPB. So just to kind of give you like a brief background, because I I realize this podcast could turn boring pretty fast if it hasn't already, but the CFPB was created by the Obama administration in response to the banking crisis uh, that the executive branch actually created itself okay so the it came comes from the executive branch but that really is another topic right for another time of like how that was like actually created but anyways obviously the executive branch you know continues to find ways to legislate through creating boards and agencies within their branch but there are two main constitutional problems with the CFPB that makes it different from the other agencies that the executive branch created. So number one, Obama allowed for there to be one chairman, one board of director, and he appointed Elizabeth Warren instead of a multi-member board, which allowed for more checks on the system. That's kind of like the theory, right? The idea. And then number two, the CFPB was funded by the treasury instead of by Congress which was very strange at the time and raised eyebrows because this is very unusual. No other agency does this. Again, this allowed for less checks on this board because they had this endless amount of money that they could get from the Treasury instead of Congress trying to limit their budget that way. So it was kind of being run entirely like within the bounds of the executive branch. So not Not too long after this formation, a mortgage lender challenged an enormous fine that the CFPB put on them as $109 million because, of course, they said they violated one of their regulations. And so this case landed in Judge Kavanaugh's D.C. court, which is where really all of these type of cases go to in the D.C. court. And so the opening line of Kavanaugh's opinion really explains it all, how this is going to go. And here's the quote. This is a case about executive power and individual liberty. So Kavanaugh viewed this growing legislative role in the executive branch as really a threat to individual liberty. And this idea really did come from the dissent. And he explained more of this during his hearings. And he related back to this several times. But it comes to the side from the dissent of Justice Scalia uh, in Morrison versus Olson in 1988. And that too was about executive power of appointment. In fact, what I find fascinating is Justice Elena Kagan Uh, something that she said about this dissent of Scalia's. She said it was one of the greatest dissents ever written, and every year it gets better. So that piqued my interest, and of course I had to read it, and it's really instructive. I really wish I would have read it before I went to law school. Scalia does a really great job of kind of giving you a foundational uh, information about the principles of the Constitution and why we have these separate branches. And in his dissent, he says, without a secure structure of separated powers, our Bill of Rights would be worthless, as are the Bill of Rights of many nations of the world that have adopted or even improved upon the mere words 
of ours. So the idea being is that what allows us to have individual liberty is being able to separate those powers into three different branches. So the more that some of those powers kind of come together and concentrate even into one of the branches, um, that is a threat to our individual liberty. Um, it's a threat to the Bill of Rights. And so this idea, this opinion, is influential in Kavanaugh's reasoning. So Kavanaugh's opinion went against the structure of the CFPB, being a single director board, and put it into perspective by saying the following. Now this is really kind of, uh, to me, put everything into context and kind of made me really rethink uh, this board as well. When measured, this is what Kavanaugh says, when measured in terms of unilateral power, the director of the CFPB is the single most powerful official in the entire U.S. government other than the president. So here you got Elizabeth Warren, who is the second most powerful person to Barack Obama, right? At that time. And, and of course, they really liked that. So when Kavanaugh went against this idea of this structure, you can imagine the left really didn't like this at all. So Kavanaugh's like DC court heard cases dealing with the administrative state and not really any moral legislation like abortion. It is my opinion that Kavanaugh is feared more by the left because of his rulings on scaling back the growing legislative power of the executive branch through these agencies than they are fearful of abortion. Now, I do believe the abortion argument is another noble lie in order to stir up emotions of fear with their base, which both parties do it, right? Honestly, the right does it with guns and uh, with immigration. Not to say that, of course, we shouldn't be worried about some things, but they do it too. But really, the truth is that we don't really know how Kavanaugh would vote on a case that covers abortion restrictions, because he never has. He is much more dangerous to untangling the administrative state than anything else, which is why I am so anxious for him to be nominated. I look forward to it. I really, really want it. I love his whole um, idea and concept of individual liberty and how to preserve it. And again, this is kind of the dark matter of the legislative process that people don't know and don't see. It's kind of behind the curtain, right? And so you don't really see it, know it. So again, to me, I think the left really worries about that more than anything because that takes away another prong for their legislative ideas of their utopian society. So to put this even more into perspective with how much the administrative state is used over and beyond Congress, and of course the right does this too, but the left uh, a little bit more so, especially under the Obama administration, there was a Forbes article in 2017 that detailed that in Obama's last year, his federal departments, agencies, and commissions issued in 2016 3,853 rules, while Congress passed only 214 laws. 
So that is a ratio of 18 rules by the administrative state for every law passed by Congress. So now this kind of brings me to my last point with Obergefell, Obergefell and versus Hodges. I'm just going to call it O, right? That's what I'll do instead of torturing you every time I try to pronounce it. So this really is the case that allowed for same-sex marriage to be a fundamental constitutional right. Justice Kennedy, he's the one who wrote this opinion, which has held, which was held by the left, you know, like as something of like, this is amazing. Of course, we love it. I don't even think people read it. (laughs) I just think they saw that it came on their side and they were like, felt justified. Uh, But it can also be kind of characterized as another noble lie. That's kind of what I'm going to call it. So remember, a noble lie, according to Plato, is a literal falsehood expressing emotional truths. And I have a reason why I think that. It's not just because I feel it to be true, but um, the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts, the way he explains it, screams noble lie like everywhere again noble lie isn't meant to say that somebody is bad it's 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 a real emotional truth for these people that they believe and create that this will create uh, a more utopian society it's a different way of viewing the world so i really just kind of want to explain or read some of chief justice's you know dissent because i feel like I can, first of all, I can't paraphrase it any better. And it really goes to the heart of what a noble lie sounds and looks like. And this is what he said. He said, this court is not a legislature. Whether same-sex marriage is a good idea should be of no concern to us. Under the Constitution, judges have power to say what the law is, not what it should be. Although the policy arguments for extending marriage to same-sex couples may be compelling, the legal arguments for requiring such an extension are not. The fundamental right to marry does not include a right to make a state change its definition of marriage. Many people will rejoice at this decision, and I begrudge none their celebration. But for those who believe in a government of laws, not of men, the majority's approach is deeply disheartening. I kind of felt that. That rang true to me. That's how. That's what I believed on a legal perspective of what is right and wrong. And I did go to law school. I do have a law degree. And I remember reading this and I felt like O versus Hodges rang more similar to Roe versus Wade in the way that the legal arguments were presented. And it just did not um, hold much water to me. So forget about how someone feels morally about a topic. Um, The fundamentals just were not there. So then kind of lastly, I just want to read one more part of his decision. He really does kind of put it into context. And this was my favorite part of his decision. And this is what he said. So the majority's decision is an act of will, not legal judgment. The right it announces has no basis in the Constitution or the court's precedent. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalahari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the 
Ghanans and the Aztecs. And then the last line, just who do we think we are? Now that to me is a bold rhetorical question. So the left at least believed they could count on Justice Kennedy to be that swing vote for social issues, to be legislated by the Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, the left does not believe Kavanaugh will be that same swing vote on these social issues. A recent article that I just read a couple days ago in the New York Post by, I'm gonna, and I hope to get his name right because I try to look to see how to pronounce it, and it's so rab Amari. <laughs> He's from Iran. He's an Ir- Iranian American, a really fascinating guy. And he wrote in the New York Post uh, an article titled The Drive to Sink Kavanaugh is Liberal Totalitarianism. Now, Amari, in my opinion, does a great job of defining totalitarianism because, again, that word really gets thrown around a lot, which almost kind of makes it meaningless. I think people grow deaf to that word because it's so extreme when it's used. But this is how he defines it and explains it. The classical definition is a society where everything, ethical norms and moral principles and truth itself is subjugated to political ends. So what really, you know, quote unquote, woke me up to the hysteria that I was witnessing before my eyes, whether it was on social media or the news, was how he succinctly explained why we are experiencing a sort of crucible, you know, like era of people you know, shouting, I saw Sarah Good with the devil. You know, I, I do feel like um, I'm watching the crucible when it comes to this um, uh, sometimes in the last couple of like weeks, uh, it, it's just a bit jarring. But Amari, what he writes kind of really resonates with me. And this is what he said. He said, the question is, why have Republican high court nominations brought out the worst from the left going back to the Ronald Reagan era? The short answer is that liberals fear their major cultural victories of the past half century are democratically illegitimate. Not a single one was won at the ballot box, going back to the Supreme Court's 1965 Griswold decision, which recognized a constitutional right to contraceptives, from abortion to gay marriage, plus a host of less titillating issues, modern liberalism has lived by the court, and liberals fear their cause will die by the court. Now, I do not doubt the left's sincerity of how they really feel about these topics, these social norms, this utopian they're trying to create. I just really disagree with their tactics on how they try to go about achieving, you know, this result. Um, So really, as you can see, as I'm like trying to set it up here now towards the end, as I'm wrapping this up, Congress is like the least effective tool that the left sees for creating their utopian society, what they believe will be best for everybody. I don't think, I don't think they're trying to create something that they think is only best for the, the rich elite. I really don't. I think that they really do believe that everybody will thank them in the end because this will be so much better for everybody in society because it'll be just and fair. 
And over the decades, um, maybe even starting with FDR, they've realized they cannot do that through the democratic process of congressmen and passing bills in Congress, really. And so the trend has been through finding ways through the executive branch and the judicial branch. And now that the executive branch is Donald Trump, which, by the way, in my opinion, I truly believe they would be irate with any Republican, any, any Republican uh, in the White House, no matter who it is. D Donald Trump just makes it much easier for lots of people to become irate about either things he says or tweets, you know. And so that, that I think is a red herring that they use Donald Trump as the face of it. No, I don't think it's really him. I think it's the fact that they can't now do certain things. And now especially the, the simple fact with the white, uh, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court has just kicked it into another high gear. I, I don't think they thought Donald Trump would nominate the people that he has nominated. And in Kavanaugh, he's the biggest threat to the administrative state than there ever has been. And so this will be the big showdown. And that's really, in my opinion, what it is more about. But really, to end on a positive note, because really, there always is one. We really are not experiencing anything so different than what has happened in the past, like the 1960s. And I want to end with one, one more author uh, and a book of his. It's Morris P. Fiorina. And he wrote a book after the 2016 elections called Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemate. And it really does put our current political divide into perspective. And, it, and actually, it's not as bleak as one might think. You would actually be surprised to learn that we really, you know, are not in an unprecedented time. Um, so it's really not as bad as what people think. So he, he wrote an article literally just uh, yesterday that kind of follows up on some of the, you know, apocalyptic language of how scary it is or it seems that of, of the division between people. And this is kind of what he says that he hopes might make people feel a little bit calmer or more optimistic. And he says this, in recent years, there has been a great deal of commentary about Americans becoming tribal, adopting partisanship as an identity, and attributing nothing but good to their own party and nothing but bad to the other party. One widely cited study reported that more people now even say that they would be unhappy if their child married someone from the other party. Well, in the 1950s, 75% of Americans claimed affiliation with either the Democratic or Republican parties. Today, that figure stands at only 60%. Numerous studies find that normal Americans, normal, are unhappy with both parties. So, so really, when you kind of dive into the numbers, we're not as bad as it seems. Maybe the rhetoric is is difficult to handle because it's so readily accessible we can easily find out about it within minutes of it happening and maybe that makes it feel like it's more prevalent or it's worse but the great part is when you dive into the numbers it might make you feel a little bit more calm that really uh, we're not doing as bad or we're not as partisan as we actually have been told that we are
You know, I continue to believe that building a stronger community around you will give you more peace of mind about the world that you live in than tracking, you know, the country's temperature on a daily basis, either through social media or the 24 hours news cycle. So I kind of want to end with something that Edmund Burke has said about this. And he said, to be attached to the subdivision, to love the little platoon we belong to in society is the first principle of public affections. So I cannot change the left going mad right now, but I can make sure that I do not add to the madness by belittling their position or their fear. So really my hope is to persuade them that utopia comes down to how we treat each other more on a day-to-day basis than if we have certain laws that force each other to treat each other a certain way. But utopian societies could be a great topic, but that is another book for another time. <laughs>